0: Welcome, you're listening to Building the Backend, a podcast for data architects, where we will uncover what's working and what's not across the data landscape. I'm your host, Travis Lawrence. Join me on a journey to understand the best patterns, tools, and frameworks for implementing modern data architectures. Each week, I will interview data leaders and architects, like the Vice President of Engineering at LinkedIn, or the founder of Data Kitchen, and employees at Microsoft and Google and many other top companies. To start off the new year, I have put together a quick 60-second survey to help me better understand how I can best serve you. Go to buildingthebackend.com survey to complete it. And if you do, your next coffee is on me, aka I will email you a Starbucks gift card. If you're hearing this message, then the survey is still live, so act fast and help me improve the podcast. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey there listeners, Travis Lawrence here with another great interview on uncovering what's working and what's not in the data landscape. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the mic, H.O. Maycott. H.O. is the CEO and co-founder of Molecula, an enterprise feature store that simplifies, accelerates, and controls big data access to power machine scale analytics and AI. Molecula is powered by Pelosa, an open source project created by H.O. and team. Pelosa eliminates the need to copy data between systems in order to make it accessible for analytical and machine learning purposes at scale. Leading companies like Spotify, Hulu, Uber, Zillow, ESPN, and many more are all utilizing Pelosa. Welcome to the show, H.O. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Travis. Absolutely. Can you share a little bit more about your previous experience and what gap um, that you saw in the industry that led you to start Molecula? Definitely. I'll I'll share with you a little bit of my origin story personally and professionally. Um, You
1: know, I'm originally from Mexico, and I've always been obsessed with this idea that humans need to evolve faster. Um, And I've always thought, even from my very first job, my very first company, that data and AI are going to eventually drive a super evolution. And I think today we're starting to see some of those super evolutionary sparks inside of the tech titans. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've watched The Social Dilemma. Um, no on Netflix, um, you know so some of those super evolutionary sparks are happening, but I want to see those happen across industries across company sizes you know agriculture, life sciences, healthcare these seem to be capabilities right now that are only really available to the tech titans so with this obsession you know and and this realization that data and AI are going to sort of put us on a path to beating darwin um, i 've tried to focus on building really large scale uh, what I like to call machine scale, not human scale uh, systems uh, to do real time decision making um, and in my career as I've tried to do that, like it's 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 almost impossible, right? like as they say, there's a proverbial gravity, you know physics kicks in and 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 we just have way too much data and we're creating way, way too much data. and so uh, at our last company, I was uh, building what we called the customer data platform, sort of the confluence between ad tech and crms and I think a lot of people have tried to build these platforms, a lot of companies have tried to build these platforms and we end up just dealing with the data challenges everybody else does, and it becomes really difficult to scale. Uh, We were very focused on sports media and entertainment and every customer was bringing us hundreds of millions of fans from hundreds You know, data from hundreds of sources uh, with hundreds of millions of attributes and my promise to my customers, which was a real time system, started to fall flat. Our most important Mm -hmm. queries were taking, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And no matter how much scale I I threw at the problem, I could not reduce that latency. And so we knew that we had to do one of a couple of things. Right. We either had to invent something totally new, which how do you do that Um, or. We would have to start pre-processing and batching and sampling and doing all of the things that you make, you know, you make do with to make data manageable. And so we had two engineers on the team there that had been uh, um, building machine scale systems and quantitative stock trading. And, uh, and and they came to me with this crazy idea and they said, hey, Joe, every time we were preparing data for machine scale analysis in our last job, we would do this thing called feature engineering. And the very first step of feature engineering was called feature extraction, which is essentially the dimensionality reduction of really complex schemas, right? Features are essentially attributes. But further, you do this process of one-hot encoding all of these attributes. Eventually we taught the system how to do integers and floating point and everything else, but you reduce complex schemas into objects and attributes and every attribute becomes a yes, no question. So essentially really large bitmaps. Um, And so they made this proposal to me and at the time I really didn't understand what they were saying and I'm like, you know, go for it, you have six months to bring back uh, a prototype of this and so six six months later they came back with a prototype of this feature store that did two things that were very unique, we now have a portfolio of 32 patents, uh, nine that got issued almost immediately afterwards on a technology that automatically converts data into features at the source. So taking topics out of pipelines or CDC out of, out of databases um, and automatically converting all the data, taking schema changes, inserts, deletes, updates, converting that to features at the source and routing features into what we built, uh, which was a purpose-built feature store from the bottom up. Um, and when we saw this run against a massive elastic search cluster, We went from 20-second queries to two millisecond queries on a two-node Pelosa cluster. Pelosa is what we call the technology at the time. Uh, And we just started discovering these, like, amazing characteristics. The data in it was 10x plus smaller than the data that we were representing without any sacrifice in quality, um, without any sampling. Um, It was incredibly secure because we weren't copying data into the feature store we were just mapping those relationships between attributes and objects and then because of this form that the data was in we forget but bitmaps are all the computers adding in a processor all day long every day so we'd produce the data into its most common form and queries were executing three four five orders of magnitude faster um you know we were to taking something that had never been done before and, uh, and we knew we needed to teach the world, uh, hey, we've got to show you the power of features over data. And that was sort of the, the genesis of, of, of what we're doing today.
0: Great. Yeah, no, I mean, what you just described sounds like a magical unicorn. For those who aren't familiar with feature stores, what, you know, when do you use it? When do you don't use it? You know, It sounds like a magical solution. How come everyone's not using it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we're working on that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, we as humans like to sort of incrementally improve our, our our patterns and our infrastructures. And sometimes these leaps forward are hard to assimilate. Uh, I think the good news is that, um, you know, molecular and feature stores are here to fix a lot of that. I think the world has now woken up to the power of features over the mm-hmm. last six to nine months. Uh, feature stores have really exploded on the scene. Um, I think there's no question that features are really the best ingredient for training and productionizing models um, but um, but we're seeing that you know that, that for the most part, these are reference architectures that are storing features in databases. Right. And so what we're saying that's different is like features. Yes, are amazing. We agree. But when you actually read and write from a purpose built feature store, it changes a lot of things. And, and, and I think further just elaborating on the, on the power of features um, and feature stores is I do think the market has put this, you know, call it AI machine learning cart Ahead of the data readiness horse. Oh yeah, right. Um, you know, some of the statistics out there are just mind-boggling, right? Like uh, the average company's using less than one percent of their data and analytics and machine learning workloads. Um, the one that I think I just that drives me insane is that you know only fifteen percent of data today is original; the other eighty-five percent are copies that we make to index, put in columnar databases. I believe Yeah, so we tend to copy and move data to try to make decisions from it, which just makes the data problem worse, right? So um,
0: that's the purpose that we're here, you know, uh, uh, to solve. So is Pelosa Molecular is that more so the use case geared towards machine learning and AI, or is it also kind of to replace the more traditional BI data warehouse solution too?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I think to me, it's all analytics. Everybody has this continuum of
0: analytics, which is like, you
1: know, descriptive analytics, which is BI and reporting diagnostic, which is supposed to be insights. I don't think the world of insights really happened the way we thought it was going to happen. Like, I don't wake up with an email telling me all the things I should be thinking about that day, although I I wish it did happen. Uh, But those two types of analytics can happen overnight, can be batched, can be based on samples, right? Because they're supporting human scale decisions. But now that we're moving into sort of the third, which is, uh, you know, predictive analytics um, that really can no longer tolerate that. Right. You've got to make decisions in real time. um, Mm -hmm. And and that's where these real time systems really need to start to come in. And then, you know, beyond predictive, we've got prescriptive like, hey, you know, what's going to happen and what should I do about it? Um, And then I always add a a fifth. There's only a few people doing this so far. But, you know, I, I, I call proactive analytics the fifth type of analytics. And, you know, that's where you're making uh, prediction, you're choosing a path of action, and you're actually taking that action, and then you're incorporating mm-hmm. a feedback loop to improve it over and over. Um, but those three new types of analytics that we're all trying to do depend on data readiness, right? And we've got a lot of data, but most of our data is not ready. Um, it takes extraordinary effort to uh, get it into those three forms of analytics.
0: Yep, no, completely agree. And Molecular is based on, or built on top of Pelosa, which is an open source project that y'all created, right?
1: Yes, uh, and and so when we first fund these patents out of our last company, we knew we needed to get the community's feedback. You know, we're sort of at an interesting juncture with open source overall. And as a company, we're in the process of making some really big decisions. Um, We're going to be really taking our open source product and turning it into a library uh, to let people really leverage the benefit of of using features in their own products. But we as a company are really pushing the as-a-service version of our feature store um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and really the on-ramp to, to services is, you know, fully featured services that are pay-as-you-go. Um, so we're really about to start investing much more on the cloud side than we are, you know, the open source and on-prem side.
0: Got it. Um, so it, with the, you know, the as a service, is that you have Kubernetes clusters that spin up within customers' clouds or are they sending data to y'all?
1: Yes, great question. So, most of our implementations today are still on print. Um, and yes, they use all of the technologies that you describe. Um, they can be happening in their data centers and their VPCs on the edges, you know, um, but as we move to this fully managed version that we're in the process of rolling out now, um, the idea is that there is no infrastructure management, right? There is no turning knobs or tuning clusters, Um so really trying to move completely into, a, a, you know, a hands-free environment where, um, where features are being stored and served for you um, without having to manage the infrastructure.
0: And would that live within a customer's, like, kind of virtual game, you know, firewall network and all yes.
1: that? Yes. Yes, great question. So
0: um, we're,
1: from day one, really thinking of ourselves as an underlay. Um, you know, Snowflake did such a good job of emerging as an overlay to the three major clouds. I think they'll go down in history as, you know, one of the most genius approaches to just layering more services on top of a service that was already providing all of those capabilities. Um, we really think of ourselves as something similar, you know, delivering machine ready or like I like to call model ready data under the three major clouds. So we're completely agnostic and actually we support more than three clouds um we sort of sit between the network and the cloud to provide your analytic workloads your machine learning workloads data that's ready to make decisions on and so as we get to this fully featured cloud version that we're that we're in the process of building we see a world where you tap your data wherever it sits um that data gets converted to features at the source. You're not risking the security of your data by moving those features into this feature service. Uh, you're loading your models and you're executing on those models. Like think Heroku for models. Um, and that, that that's a bit out. So that's about 15 to 18 months out, mid to late next year. Um, but that's where we're really going ultimately with our service. Like imagine what happens in a world where you no longer have to, uh, you know, launch infrastructure, manage infrastructure, secure it and monitor it for every single project and make copies and move data for every single project. And so, you know, that that thought really excites
0: me. Who are the target users of molecula? And kind of what what do their yeah. infrastructures look like?
1: It's, it's really a, 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 a question that we wrestle with every day, right? We've got our buyers um, who are typically the executives. Um, we've got uh, the data engineers who are typically the implementers. And then we've got the application developers and the data scientists who are generally the beneficiaries of having, you know, utility style model ready data. Um, but our primary persona is definitely uh, the data engineer, right? Like our internal mission is to make data engineers heroes. We just had... Um, at a very large company that's a client of ours, uh, the data engineer that, that runs the molecular team internally, uh, just got made MDP. Um, and for us, that's like, you know, a, a dream come true. And so, you know, data engineers are keeping the planes in the air, right? They have a tough job and, you know, data scientists always want to do new projects and business owners always want to try new things, but they've got a tough job. And so we really focus on them and helping them, uh, in this pattern of making copies in this data death spiral, which I call, you know, a, a new infrastructure for every project and to deliver model ready data to the team so that the data scientist no longer has to be a data engineer. They can focus just on what they're good at. And so um, while those other personas matter, we really focus heavily on the data engineer. Um, and, and then I would say, you know, stepping up to a 50,000 foot view, our, our ICP is really any company that's doing between 500 million in revenue to, I would say, 10 billion in revenue. And that could be the company or a business unit who has, you know, hundreds of millions, billions, hundreds of billions. We have one now that's doing almost a trillion events a day um, and is trying to join that data in real time against, you know, massive terabyte scale or even petabyte scale, uh, you know, data warehouses. And they can't afford to do the intermediary steps, right? Like pre-join it and pre-process it. Like they've got to make decisions you know, in the supply chain or they've got to make decisions in the session with that user or offer a, a risk decision in that moment. And so uh, that's generally the type of company that we're focused on. Um, mm-hmm. But But solving those latency problems are not just the only benefit of speed. The other benefit of speed is Cost, right? You don't have to have the data warehouse and the and the materialized view and all of the sort of interim steps. So there is a cost story as well that we can go into. And then lastly, like I, I find it fascinating that our most important data in companies today is the hardest one to get. Like you go into an insurance company who might have, let's say, five million um, customers. That data is now in hundreds of databases. There is no way for them to run a performant, machine-scale, real-time query against all of the data that it, that makes up those customers. So their most important data is now the hardest to get. And so, you know, taking that fragmentation and creating a feature store that has all of the customers and all of the attributes updated to the millisecond um, is is also a, you know a value pillar for us.
0: So does Molecula? It integrates with all those hundred databases directly.
1: Yes, exactly. So we have taps on those databases. um, And so um, sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're totally different. Sometimes the schemas are totally different. Um, And then just the features get routed. So that compression that we get in the, you know, in the actual footprint of the feature store, we're also getting across the network. Um, And that security that we're getting in the footprint by not having values copied into the feature store, we're also getting across the network.
0: And I I assume you're probably taking advantage of CDC if it's a relational database and it supports it. And then probably even just invents if it's something like Kafka and stuff like that. Exactly. Our most perfect architecture is, you know, it's coming through a pipeline.
1: You're writing it to a persistent store, you know, for safekeeping. And then we're getting a copy of that into the feature store so that you can have, you know, I like to get sort of emotional and say data consciousness uh, of your business so any question that you need to ask whether it's in production applications or it's ad hoc you know you're milliseconds
0: away from being able to ask that question and this probably does not replace your traditional bi or does it
1: you know no like I, and i would say it doesn't it doesn't replace your traditional ai and i think you know one of the questions we get often is like, how do you compare to the other feature stores? Um, Mm -hmm. Which is um, at the end of the day, a lot of the feature stores that are out there, whether these are the reference architectures inside of the tech titans or, you know, our, you know, quote unquote feature store competitors. If you look at them, they're so much more than we are, right? They're model management tools. You know, they're helping you manage the entire life cycle of of your data science, uh, you know, um, world. We Mm -hmm. are... The storage system underneath they're all reading and writing from data stores we want them to read and write from a feature store features are undoubtedly the ingredient that we've all decided is you know are, is going to power machine learning uh, we just want them in the world to see the benefits of reading and writing from a feature store so the data scientists are still using the tool that they use every day and to your bi question yes if you're using the lookers or whatever you happen to be using uh you don't know the difference between uh, you know the data of it sitting in a feature store or of it sitting in you know the data warehouse. The only difference is going to be the speed you know we We see a lot of executives who think that their bi is real time because they can click on the pie chart and it changes shapes when they drill into it, but they don 't realize that the data that's feeding that might have been run through a batch process that's two weeks old, and two weeks is not something that 's odd like we see a lot of two weeks in those type of environments
0: and if you are wanting to do transformations. Of the feature stores, typically that's probably being done in Python or another language. Yes, yeah, so this is a great question, and you
1: know we're we're all in early stages, right? Like you know operational AI, ML ops, like we're all learning. That's like we're all on the tip of 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 the future. But um, generally, what happens today is that transformation is happening in an ETL pipeline, right? It's happening upstream mm-hmm. in the pre-processing or the pre-aggregation. Um, and so to some degree, that might be good because the end user doesn't have to think about it. But the problem is every time they need to have a transformation done or change a transformation, you know, the information request to IT could take weeks or months. Um, all of that lends itself to copies and the pre-processing that we talked about earlier. And so future stores... As we're proposing them, the feature storage system that we're putting um, out to the world shatters this latency floor. These millisecond, sub-millisecond queries are amazing, but they're even more amazing because now you can do your joins in real time at the query. You can do your 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 transformations at the query. Um, you know, as we're moving to this this cloud version that we were talking about earlier, we see a world where feature stores, you know, don't even get queries. You know, it's about models. Um, You execute models against the feature store. You have a model planner executing against the feature store Um, and any modification that you need to make to the data, any feature selection, any joins. Those are just happening in your code. Those are just happening in your model. And so, yes, at first, if you have hundreds of queries that are written based on already transformed data, it may take some time to translate all of that, um, right. but the benefits are, are, are massive. And certainly if you're starting from greenfield, like why would you do the other if you can now do those in real time? Um, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it, it's a good question. Right. And, and I'll riff on that a little bit and just say that I think one of the, the most interesting things that I've experienced since the day we invented this, you know, it was so fast. We thought it was broken for the first few hours when we put it up against you know, the production data in our environment, you know, seven, eight years ago. Um, But real-time use cases are very ephemeral. Like, you know, people's definition of real-time is very different. And there's not a lot of true real-time out there. Like, we have customers that have built four, five, six, seven use cases on top of their feature store, um, molecular feature store. And that's one of the neat things about the feature store. You don't have to go re-architect an ETL pipeline or build a data warehouse for each project. Like you're doing those joins and transformations in the model. So for the new project, you're just changing the models, not the data infrastructure underneath. Um, so that's awesome. But the data science teams, tend to run off with copies of the data, right? So they get IT to make copies and they go take them to their laptops and they go take them to their sandboxes. You know, they build and train models. And then once the model's where they want it, they'll go output some scores and some rankings with IDs and they'll send them back to IT to go import back into the the core databases. Um, There is nothing real time about that. Like imagine if they could have model ready data to train the models and then with that exact same data go to production. And not only that, but that model that they built is doing that score and that ranking in the session, you know, mm-hmm. within milliseconds without having to like output it into an intermediary step and have it uploaded. That doesn't happen very often today. Like, you know, risk. Oh you know, underwriting in the financial services world still is all batch. Um, You know, everything is all batch. And so that's the thing that's really blown me away is that we still really don't know what real time is going to bring to the world.
0: Right. And I mean, I think there's so many valuable use cases that a lot of times the business isn't even thinking about because of the perception that it's so costly and technically difficult to get it in the first place because it's probably hard enough for them to get like, Data, you know, data updated daily for a lot of things. Exactly, So they're exactly. not even thinking about the value add or what could be provided to the customer from that perspective.
1: Yes, and I think it's assumed that using information era constructs that there has to be a complete like change management process culturally and a and a complete retooling of the infrastructure. And I think that's my favorite thing. Back to the original point I made about my. Obsession on the super evolution. The cool thing about feature stores is they layer over your existing infrastructure. Um, you stick these taps down like tentacles into uh, you know into all of the, the databases that have information that you need, and without disturbing anything, you now have this new pane of glass that has an up to the moment updated view of everything. And as you Choose, you can start decommissioning the infrastructure down below. And we tend to decommission a ton of Elasticsearch and a ton, a ton of Druid and a ton of, you know, obviously, Hadoop, uh, you know, all these, you, and even, you know, these, these tech titans that are releasing these, these reference architectures for feature stores, you know, they'll have Cassandra and Elasticsearch and, and Hive all in the same feature store. Um, all of that gets to go away and it's 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 pretty exciting but it doesn't have to
0: go away before you can realize the value of your data. What are your guiding principles when designing a modern data architecture from the from the ground up? Let's say you have a green field. Obviously, there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of, you know, depends, you know, depends on the use cases but just for your general organizations, they have, you know, maybe tens, hundreds of different data sources. They're doing machine learning, AI. They have, your more traditional BI, what is that? What are your guiding principles when designing that type of architecture? Yeah, I love this question, and I wish we could have this conversation with every customer. It, you know,
1: it was only that easy uh, to start uh-huh. over, but um, <laughs> in a perfect world, I would say. Despite the migration to the cloud, because the cloud is great, the elasticity that the cloud brings is there's no question that there's immense value in that. But I think a lot of companies assume that just because they move their data to the cloud, that it's automatically going to be magic and it's all going to work. And certainly there is a lot of magic happening, uh, but it's mostly for the human scale problems, right? Like those machine scale, ultra low latency uh problems are not getting solved. And my analogy is that just because you take your laundry to the laundromat doesn't mean that you don't have to wash it, right? Like mm-hmm. um, you know, it's 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 not a magic bullet. So in this construct, and it's very self-serving towards the future feature stores, I believe that you should leave your data wherever it's technically, politically, and jurisdictionally safest, right? We our connectors are called taps, right? So tap that data wherever it sits, on the edge, on-prem, in a cloud wherever, um, and only move features um, into uh, a data pipeline, Um, that data pipeline should warehouse it um, and should put it into a feature store so that um, you now have this data in a model-ready form, whether those are in development or in production. And then from a consumption standpoint, um, I would love to see Uh, you know, move away from all of this laptop data science that's happening and from the data scientists have to be, you know, having to be data engineers. And, you know, there's this fun debate out there, you know, some people are like, well, data scientists love to be data engineers. And that's part of the job, you know, Um, (laughs) to like, no, you know, 80, 90% of the time is being wasted, um, you know, managing and munching data, regardless of that, like, once you want model ready data, um, that you could immediately start iterating where latency wasn't an issue where, you know, in training, you weren't getting files sent over you, the risk, imagine the CISOs, you know, you know, having to think about all of this, these files floating around. And then once you train the model, like, um, that that model could go into production with a click. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's some, and, and I think AI and machine learning has more statistics than even data has. So, take these with a grain of salt. But, um, you know, some of the most stark statistics that I've seen on on this side of the equation right now is that only 6% of models today are making it to production. Um, And that it takes on average about nine months to take any of those models to production. And it costs on average 2 to $3 million in infrastructure deployment a year to put those models into production. Um, You know, what happens in a world where that goes away?
0: And we're saying that can go away or can be significantly reduced when you have these kind of real-time feature stores where you're actually developing in your kind of production type environment. You're not deploying a different
1: one. Absolutely. And we need a mindset change, right? Like today, um, one of the questions we get a lot from data science is like, well, how do you do feature selection? We're like you don't have to do feature selection because all of the data is already turned into features. Uh, Well, what if in feature selection, you want to do some feature engineering and change some values and do some calculations. Well, you no longer have to do that ahead of time. You can do that directly in your model. Um, But we're so used to the old way of doing things that, you know, overall, I think we're all fighting for this shift in mindset. And I'm not sure any of us have all of the answers, but, uh, I think the next few years are going to be really exciting for, for this entire space.
0: And you, you mentioned earlier that you kind of keep the data where it lives or the source of it, but you are making a copy or kind of creating this bitmap of these attributes, right? It's
1: fair. So, you know, to say that it's zero copy would be disingenuous. I think um, essentially what we're doing is we're we're flipping bits where an object and an attribute you know, um, intersect. So is HO 46? Yes or no? Um, HO is the object. Uh, 46 happens to be the attribute and you store a one instead of a zero. Um, Then the objects and the attributes are stored in what we call translation keys. So those translation keys are what contain... The actual objects and the actual attributes and what's really cool when we discovered all of this is that translation keys grow nonlinearly with respect to the data right so there's kind of a finite point at which the translation keys stop growing and they're fairly small. Um, so then that's where we start to get this amazing compression because we're then just flipping bits and then further in our IP um, we shard these bitmaps so we can distribute them in a very large cluster. And then we apply homomorphic compression Uh, depending on the density of those bitmaps, it all happens automatically in the internals, but whether it's dense, mixed density, you know, high cardinality, ultra high cardinality, we're then further applying a homomorphic compression technique, which lets us read and write from the bitmaps without having to decompress them. Um, So as long as you maintain a separation between the translation keys uh, and the core features, Reverse engineering that is pretty difficult. Could it be done given all of the effort in the world? Yes. Um, you know, use all of the typical techniques: use secure interconnects, use encrypted disks, um, uh, and we are further working on a on a homomorphic encryption technique right now to layer onto our compression that will then further compress those bitmaps, um, both in transit and at rest. And then we believe that that will be. The most secure format for representing data, right? You're effectively operating on a mathematical representation uh, and not the data itself. And I think if we have our way and, uh, and and it's just permissions that separate you from all of the data and not, you know, millions and tens of millions of infrastructure for every project, I think the sharing Uh, economy that could develop is truly mind boggling, right? The ability to collaborate and, 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 and share data, I think is what's most exciting to me about, about all of this potential with features.
0: Mm -hmm. That's great. And and so your transformations essentially happen on the fly. Exactly. That's the goal. And your models run on the fly. At least that's what we want you to do. We don't want you to output it and then, you know,
1: and then, you know, uh, import it, you know, everything
0: should just be on the fly now, but we've never known that that was possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So kind of right. Flips it upside down and in the consumers, the outputs, what what are the consumers of these, you know, this real time now models? Yeah. So, so a couple of answers there, you know,
1: First, we've always wanted to match our customers' current environment, so SQL is an obvious answer, so we have some level of SQL compatibility, we don't, you know, do the deep transactional SQL, Um, we do most of the analytical SQL, Um, um, but underneath that, really most of the interactions are happening in our client libraries, right, so take a Python client library, you know, customers are baking us into their applications, whether that's internal analytics or customer-facing analytics, or um, or models that are making underwriting decisions. Um, so, so the client libraries are the are, are the way that we're interacting with the system the most. We are moving to the idea that you know, queries are for data stores, models are for feature stores. Um, so, we're moving to a world where. You know, a model could be as simple as a query and as complex as a deep neural network. Um, But uh, but you're 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 running models against the feature store, not queries. We're not quite there yet, but we're pretty excited about it.
0: So can you hook up Power BI, Tableau, Looker today? Yes. So I guess when you and that's like that'd be a real time integration. So when you load that um, BI tool, it will kind of query. And we don't
1: support all of them. And we're typically even if we do support them we're typically a little grumpy with our customers about it. You know, we want them really thinking on the machine scale, like we need a machine right. in the middle, not a human in the middle. Yep. So, um, and, and, uh, so it, we don't spend as much time and energy as we should on that, on that side of the house. But, um, mm-hmm. but yes, it is, it it is possible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those keys to adoption, right? Like if customers want to be able to do that,
0: great, then we have to support it. Yep. Uh, that makes sense. Um, uh...
1: Who are your top competitors? You know, I would say Inertia is our top competitor, right? Uh, You know, our customers, um, the business owners get pretty excited about it, right? Business execs, I think, are finally at a place where they know that their future depends on competing with data and AI. Um, So they're ready to take big risks. And I think further. They keep making these huge investments in data and they're just not getting what they want out of it. And so mm-hmm. we get the business executives really excited, but the, the 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 data engineers and the IT departments that are running these infrastructures, if not positioned correctly, you know, they're maintaining some pretty complex production systems. So you have to come in and explain to them that you're not going to um, cause a complete disruption. Uh, And then further, you're going to make the best of the investments that they've already made. So there's real financial investment, sometimes to the tunes of tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. And then there's the pride that goes with it, right? Like, you know, these people have staked their career on these infrastructures and these architectures. And so um, for them to choose to do something new means that they're going to stake their career on you. And that's a big deal. I mean, these are really big decisions, and so I think that's our number one competitive barrier. Um, and I think the second is really on the data science side. As I talked about earlier, data science is about as batch as it gets. Like we think that data science and machine learning is and ML ops and all of this is really real time and there's still a lot, a lot of batch happening, right? So um, we, we've got to shift the mindsets about what is possible. Um, and just because we show it to you, doesn't mean that you're gonna you know, leave that meeting and, and, and be willing to take those career you know, changing or ending risks. And so there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Right, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, and that said, like more, more specifically, we like to sit sort of between the data engineer and the data scientist. Um, we chose not to be in the crowded data and analytics world. We don't want to be better and faster analytics. You know, to me, the information era is all about how quickly you can sling your mud. It's like faster mud and, you know, and, 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 and let's move mud through the pipeline and let's, you know, it's all mud. And so we chose to be on the beginning of the, sort of the, the operational AI life cycle um, mm-hmm. and, and, and our positioning as a feature store is that. I do think there is some confusion and some battling over the definition of a feature store. Um, we are not a ma- model management tool and most of our feature store competitors are model management tools. To us, a feature store is the evolution of the data store. To us, the world went from transactional databases in the 70s to OLAP cubes and indices and columnar databases where all the copies began Um, to now a value-based format called a feature store. It stores data at the value, retrieves data at the value. And to me, that is the definition of a feature store. Um, It is feature storage. Um, It is not model lifecycle management. And so I think there's a lot of educating to do around that.
0: Of the users using Molecula, are the bulk of their sources coming from the source system? Or I guess what percentage would you say are still going to a central data source, like a data warehouse or a data lake?
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's a really great question. I'd say it's like 50, 50. So I'd say I'm surprised how many of our customers are already on sort of late maturity data pipelines where they're doing multi data center replication with their pipelines. And we can simply consume from topics, you know, they make schema changes. We absorb them. It's really easy when there's a, you know, a late stage maturity um, in, in their data pipelines. Um, but we also have a lot of customers that are not set up that way. And so, um, you could have source systems that are going through, a, you know, a ton of spark jobs that are writing to a data warehouse that then are writing to, you know, a cascading set of data warehouses and databases. And so, you know, in a perfect world, we would show up at the very beginning, like write directly to us and do your transformations and your models or in your queries. But the reality of the change management on that is just not there. Um, so we'll sit somewhere in the middle, right? So we'll pick up, um, you know, at the first data warehouse, uh, take those changes, operationalize them. But we but but we are finding, you know, a year or two, two years in with a lot of our customers, they're starting to route the data directly into the feature store. And right. they're starting to make plans to decommission, you know, huge, unwieldy, expensive clusters. And while cost management wasn't necessarily their primary goal, the afterthought can still save customers. I mean, we see $5 million a year savings with just one intermediary step saved, you know, Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month all the time. Um, And there's a lot of those. Like if you think (laughs) we work with middle mark, you know, mid market companies and huge enterprise companies and every project and every business unit has a completely different ETL pipeline. They all have completely different data warehouses and this data death spiral that happens is unimaginable Um, and just there's no incentive to coordinate, there is no technology to coordinate. And so, um, so I do look forward to the day where, like you asked earlier, there's a, a data pipeline, there's a warehouse and there's a feature store. Um, obviously it's idealistic, um, but we'll get there.
0: Mm-hmm. What's been your biggest lesson learned um, across your many years of data kind of experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest is still this this question I posed earlier about real time, right? Like, what is real time? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, for us, I still don't think we even really know, um, you know, is real time updates, like from the time data is created to the time it can be queried along with all your other data. That's part of real time. Um, Your ability to query that data once it's in a system you know, and how long that query takes, that is also real time, like we still see queries that take hours, half days, days, Um, you know, forget minutes and seconds, although that does too, like what happens when those turn into milliseconds or sub millisecond, right? Mm -hmm. That's real time. Um, And then the other real time I think that's forgotten is the ability to access that data without having to go through provisioning, right? So when a new project needs to kick off, like it's about delivering credentials, not about delivering infrastructure. Right. So real time access to model ready data is another part of real time. But we could keep unfolding that. And so to me, oh, yeah. to me, um, that is my biggest surprise still to date. Like I we work a lot of regulated industries. And so, you know, I like to use this example of the modern hospital room. Like there is no question data is getting generated everywhere. Those cardiac monitors, the fetal monitors and in, in, in maternity um, Oftentimes they're storing data on the device for five minutes, 10 minutes, and then it's getting deleted. Sometimes it's getting stored centrally, but for sure, never, I can say this unequivocally, are all those devices, all of those systems in that room talking with each other. They're not talking to your EHR record. They're not talking to your lab data. Um, And so it's not a data problem, right? They all have data. It's a data readiness problem. Imagine if you could ask all of those systems, like, okay, based on everything you're seeing, Could you compare that to every patient session for someone just like this patient and their outcome and determine the top three outcomes that you think this may result in? Like Mm -hmm. that's a data readiness problem. Like, right. We're not too far from that. We're making we're we're instrumented like we're creating the data to do that. But it would be unfathomable using current techniques to be able to in that moment at the point of care have a you know a physician co-pilot helping us make decisions but we hope that'll all change in the next three or four years and i think real time is really going to change the world and you know the super evolution is going to happen and, oh, yeah. and, and 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 it's going to be amazing it
0: will absolutely what is next for molecular
1: really great question so uh right now all our focus has been on sort of scaling uh to some really really uh you know demanding um, clients um, some really complex use cases. Um, It's also been on adoption and it's also been on this fully managed version um, that we've been rolling out. Uh, But I think Like I said earlier, what we see on the horizon in about the next 15 to 18 months, and we're starting to staff up for it. We just raised a round of financing in December, um, and I see another one in the near future. There's so much activity around this, so the resources are there to do it. But I do see that um, marrying model execution with the feature store and the feature storage system has just incomparable benefits. We've been doing this for select clients where, you know, you've got the bitmaps that are underneath this 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 feature store powering these features um, all in memory in these sharded clusters. When you can embed, you know, uh, correlation models, take like a tenimoto similarity algorithm, and you can execute that in the same compute layer where there's no I/O involved. Um, you're operating right. directly on that machine-ready data. Um, you get more orders of magnitude, like three or four more orders of magnitude execution speeds, um, and so. You know, back to that analogy I mentioned, I see it being like the Heroku of, 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 of models where you don't have to worry about the data. You just store your models, you train them, you test them, you productionize them, you, mm-hmm. you know, evolve them. But you're not spending all of your time worrying about the, you know, the underlying data. That's there like a utility to support the models wherever they happen to be. So we're, we're, we're working and staffing that right now. And we think, you know, mid next year um, we'll be bringing that to market.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. Wrapping up, do you have a favorite data book that you would recommend to the listeners?
1: Yes, re- really good question, and I'm going to give you a very ho answer. Um, I wouldn't say it's exactly a data book, uh, yeah. but I think the book that should inspire us all and give us hope that some amazing things are going to happen, on, you know, in the near future is you know Herbert Simon's Ghost in the Machine. Um, I love how he relates um, these holonic structures and, and information to biology. Right, like at the end of the day, everything we're doing is mirroring biological constructs. Um, and 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 I love this notion that complex systems eventually reach this simplicity. Um, and a lot of simple systems eventually reach this complexity. And so I think as, as as we get to a point where we're not having to manually intervene to make data available, this incredible complexity that we're living today is going to yield this, this this next step, this order that we can't really fathom. And so I think that's, that's, to me, the hope, and that's what we're all working towards. We need to work towards extracting value from information and getting to this next step um so that would be my reading recommendation. It's old, but it's
0: great. Yeah, I have to check that one out. I haven't I haven't yet read the. Um, if flow listeners want to connect with you afterwards or molecular, where should they go?
1: I think either Twitter or LinkedIn are great places. Um my last name Macot. I'm Maycott on Twitter and I'm Maycott on LinkedIn. Um and I would love to answer any questions, anything you heard today that you want to challenge, any ideas that you have. Um you know we're all making this this world um um together and 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 we can either let the future happen to us or we can go try to make it the way we want it to be and so yes please reach out if, if, if you if you so wish
0: awesome well thank you again ho for coming on this show i really enjoyed this conversation and i'm sure Likewise. our listeners will too awesome thank you thanks for listening to building the back if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review If you want to receive the latest data news in your inbox, join the newsletter at buildingthebackend.com. See you next time, Data Nation.